0: Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Hi, welcome to another version of the Clean Tech Round Talk and starring uh, Zachary Shahan, Joe. Boris and Steve Hanley, here to talk about a number of issues uh, that have to do with uh, news in the world of clean energy and clean trans- transportation this
1: week. So what's the first story? Steve, you had the idea for the first story. Let's ki- go ahead and kick us off.
0: Well, the thing that is interesting to me the, this week, Zachary, is the number of people who are Screaming their heads off about how electric cars are going to break the grid and we can't plug them all in at the same time what would happen there'd probably be sparks all the way up to venus or or mercury or someplace and and it's just a horrible thing and these electric cars are going to ruin our 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 lifestyle and it's just awful and my first response is
2: As a leader in energy storage technologies, Wärtsilä Energy Storage and Optimization's mission is to make storage a fundamental part of a cleaner, more intelligent, and distributed energy infrastructure. We are a passionate team tackling exciting challenges in the energy industry as we transition the power grid to a 100% renewables future. Our technologies and solutions are a critical component supporting utilities, renewables developers, independent power producers, and many more energy asset owners in their decarbonization journeys. As Wartzilla Energy Storage continues to grow, we are always on the lookout for future-oriented talent, talent that shares our passion for the energy transition. Want to join us as we scale up? Please visit storage.wartzilla.com forward slash careers to learn more today.
0: The odds of everybody plugging in all their electric cars at the very same time and setting them to charge are exactly the same as the odds of everybody who owns a conventional car going to a gas station, opening their gas cap, putting the hose in the, in the, uh, in the filler tube, and squeezing the trigger all at the same time. In other words, the odds are exactly zero of that ever happening. And yet somehow this has become a huge deal on the internet when people are running around screaming like chickens without heads. And I just, I, I mean, it, clearly it has to be coming from the fossil fuel interests who are terrified to realize that people are actually buying electric cars. But there's more to it
2: than that, right? Like if you look at some of these, you know, some of the different areas, like, especially if you look at you know—the the, the U S energy grid is so weird, right? Cause you've got, the east of the Rockies is essentially all one grid except for Texas, and we'll get to that. And then west of the Rockies is kind of its own grid, and, and it's a very smart grid. It pulls power from where there's surplus and sends it to where it's needed. And you know it, this kind of concern is not a real concern, but one of the things that makes me think that It's not necessarily the fossil fuels that are behind this, but more the utilities is this sudden push that we're starting to see against net metering. Like now that there are more and more solar panels and inboard batteries and vehicle to grid technology coming online. So many of these power companies, you know, they don't they don't want to buy energy from you. They don't want to cut you a check for the energy that you're providing back into the grid. They want to charge you money for the energy that you're using. And that's it. And it just seems to me like, you know, a a real good way to to kind of hurt their claims that you need to keep buying energy from them is to suddenly connect 14 or 15 million high capacity batteries to a smart grid that can communicate and draw power and support each other. So like, you know, I don't mean to get too crazy and conspiratorial here. But I mean, like, you know, did aliens abduct JFK and Elvis? No, probably not. But like, do some utility companies really not want to see net metering happening? Yeah, I think that's probably real.
1: Well, the net metering is just solar related. So that's just, you know, they're paying people with rooftop solar to send electricity into the grid. You could.
2: But it's related, right? Like if you have a home battery. Net metering
1: is not. I mean, if you're talking EVs, I mean, net metering is. You know, they pay rooftop solar owners for sending electricity into the grid, but then on the EV side, they typically have EV rates and time of use rates for EVs. You could say that they're looking with greedy eyes at how they milk the most money from EV owners, but I think for the most part, they have. there are states where there's a push to put EV fees in place, where you have to pay a fee for having an EV. And the same with solar. I mean, that's actually the, the, the chat, the, the debate in California is whether and how much to charge rooftop solar owners. We have a whole long podcast actually about this that's coming and that I recorded this, this week with somebody. So yeah, check that podcast for a very lengthy discussion on the, on virtual power p- plants in California in response to the recent heat wave and on the net metering debate. Very High-level right. insights from the, the founder CEO of East Bay Community Energy, a utility that serves over a million people in 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 the East Bay region of California. So well, you may already I know the answer
2: mentioned. to this, but like you know, if you have an if you have a V 2 G setup, and your home is set up to have a two-way transmission of power. Would it not be feasible to say that when you plug in a bunch of batteries and a bunch of EV batteries into that system, that the power could go that direction as well?
1: Yeah, well, so this is a different situation because as far as I know, they're not getting paid any kind of solar net metering fees for this. But basically... This is a very new opportunity in in much of the U.S. I mean, it's been tested for years in various places, but we haven't had any V2G vehicles until basically the Ford F-150 really is bringing that to market. Ford F-150 Lightning, but in that case, and and this sort of gets to a bigger issue, which I wanted to talk about with the California story. In that case, they're ba- they're basically helping the grid to manage. You know, supply demand issues at critical junctures. so when the when the grid is really in need of, well, first of all, if it's really in need of discharging electricity, of sending because it's got oversupply of electricity, you know, some EVs have 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 agreed to programs where they can where where they can be charged at at times when the utility really needs to, you know, get rid of some electricity. On the flip side, with the V2G capability, they could also say hey when we really need when we really need some electricity can you give it to us and that's where the the where they would get paid something to send electricity into the grid through their ford f150 lightning for example but that's a separate regulation from solar net metering and it's a separate deal that is just still being tested and teased with different rates and that kind of thing but it's really they're they're using your car's battery or your truck's battery as an, a grid energy storage device, and yeah. just like they're doing with power, what would they and,
2: call that?
1: Well, they're sort of they're sort of test programs at this stage with V2G, with with energy storage systems. You know, that's they're also basically still like test programs, like virtual power plant kind of pilot programs. Uh, they've got some in in Southern California and East Bay Community Energy just uh, just implemented one early. They were planning to do it with Sunrun next year starting next year but because of the grid challenges they they launched it early and they did it recently to to help deal with those grid challenges that california just faced
0: zach there was a study out this week from stanford and their thesis was if we plug in uh, we as EV owners have been uh, inculcated with the idea that we charge our cars overnight while we're sleeping, and we wake up in the morning, and we have all of the grid of the uh, battery capacity that we need um, probably for three, four or five days of normal driving. What the California study is suggesting is, oh my gosh, there's gonna be all these EVs and they're all gonna be plugging in at night. And the electricity that's available on the grid late at night from 10 o'clock in the in the evening until six in the morning tends to come from either nuclear or coal thermal generating plants and so the argument is well now all these evs are going to be charged with uh from nuclear or or coal thermal generating facilities and so they're not nearly as clean as what we thought they were going to be Not only that, there's going to be more demand at night, and so now the utility companies, those poor deers, are going to have to build new plants to uh, uh, take care of all of these EV charging overnight, and there's two responses to that. One is that the utility companies are just beginning to stick their toe in the water of long-term energy storage that can go as long as 12 hours, which explodes the entire there's not enough renewable energy to charge cars after sundown argument. Uh, and and the, the other component of that is that the EVs are going to be charging somewhat more during the day because solar energy tends to peak between noon and four in the afternoon. The answer to the whole thing is the utility companies with the consent of public utility commissions set their rates. And right now they set their rates to encourage people to use some of that so-called spinning reserve during the late night hours. Well, they can just as easily set their rates to encourage people to use uh, some of that uh, bump bumping solar energy in the middle of the day to charge their cars—it's—it's it's really not quite the crisis that it's being made out to be.
1: Yeah, I, so- I just
2: don't stand to understand. I don't stand to realize. Like, I don't understand who stands to gain from that argument, right? Because if you make the argument that it's—it's it's, you know fossil fuel spreading misinformation about EVs, wouldn't they want all of these quote-unquote coal and natural gas plants to get built? Or am I am I missing the am I missing the trick here
1: I think a lot of people to
0: use more gasoline and diesel to run their vehicles and, and so they're trying to make people shy away from EVs which will lower demand for fossil fuels
1: I think this was a Stanford study right yes that's correct yeah, yeah well I mean this is a whole discussion, and I I would like to see a lot of research on it. But the one that you brought up, Joe, I'll get to the to the other points in a second. But Joe, the who like why does this kind of fear mongering around the EVs spread so much? And my personal opinion is that there are certain people in the in the media, and also at you know certain research institutes, think tanks, and also just in general broadly. And of course, policy makers who who ba- basically see the EV transition, they see that all the excitement around EVs, but they haven't gotten electric yet themselves, or they have reasons for not feeling ready to jump in, and they sort of look for problems to justify why they're still driving a Prius instead of a Tesla or a or a Kia EV6 or something. And I I think I, I've seen this in the real world. I think I think it. I sort of get the feeling that this is what a lot of journalists who write these kind of pieces are are sort of the boat they're in. They're like, you know, they're not ready to accept that the future is electric vehicles. They're just not ready to accept this is the future. And they're looking for explanations for why they haven't got on that wave yet. But anyway, to get to the, to the grid issues. Yeah, I think Steve, I love what you said. It's up to the utility to incentivize when they want people to charge. But you know, the, the the challenge in California has been with, with, a, with a lot more solar power, you get what they call a duck curve. So the graph looks a bit like a duck. But basically, you have rising electricity demand in the morning that, you know, you need more and more, you know, more power plants to, to run to, to fulfill. And historically, that sort of goes up and then it comes down late in the evening when people are start going to bed. But with a lot of solar on the grid, you have it rise and then you have it drop and then you have it rise again in the evening and then drop. And so you have so much, you know, solar electricity being generated that you have more supply than you historically ever had at this time when you when you do need electricity, but you don't necessarily need as much as is being produced when you have like a 20, 30, 40 percent solar grid. and at some points, it can even get to the point where, you know, the the costs or, or the grid doesn't even want any more electricity, but there's still solar getting produced, and they're like, you know, power prices can even go negative. We've seen this in, in Texas for other reasons as well, but this is sort of the the kind of challenge that you have with increasing solar power. But with increasing electric vehicles, it's like the perfect challenge because all you have to do is incentivize people, yeah, to charge their cars in the middle of the day. And the more workplace charging there is, the more the more people are working from home, the easier it is for people to say, oh, look, I actually get paid. I actually have a better deal charging in the middle of the day than in the middle of the night. Now I'm going to charge in the middle of the day more. And, you know, you just plug in. You can even set your car. You can always just plug in when you get home and set your car to charge when you know it's going to be cheaper and it's easy to do. So I think that that is it's it's sort of funny how you have this very complimentary Clean technologies coming uh, c- coming of age at the same time, and they they're so useful in that kind of way. I would just cl- mention the nighttime charging thing real quick. So a lot of places wind power is more is generated more at night. Wind wind blows more at night. It's not it's it varies by region, but this is typically common. So you know again, if they incentivize if they put in more wind power plants in wind in places that are windy at night then they can meet more of that nighttime demand easily with, with wind power. And of course, offshore wind, you have very steady wind. So you could really rely on offshore wind. And as you said, long-term energy storage. So maybe I know you have a couple of stories about long-term energy storage development, Steve, maybe we go there next before uh jumping to, to the end of this discussion or jumping to hyper cars, <laughs> which is the second part of this podcast.
0: Okay. Yeah. We- With respect to long-term energy storage, there were two stories out this week. One is a company called Energy Dome that uh, is uh, building a trial plant uh, on the island of Sardinia uh, that uses a closed-loop carbon dioxide-fueled storage medium to, to store energy for as long as 10 hours. It's new technology. We don't know whether it's going to take over the world, but it's something that's of interest. Uh, also of interest is a company in Oregon called ESS, which has uh, uh, is promoting a uh, iron-salt battery, a uh, flow battery, that has just signed a contract with the public utility that supplies Sacramento, California, to provide uh, long-term energy storage. Uh, using their flow battery technology, and they're uh, over the between now and 2030, they expect to install 200 megawatts and 2 gigawatt hours of energy storage, up to 12 hours for um, the uh, rather unfortunately named uh, Sacramento Municipal Utility District, or SMUD. Uh, once again, this is this is new technology. And there just seems to be this this fear. It so reminds me of Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's book about the monster was not about the monster. It was about people's fear of technology and how it would change their lives. And I think most people who read Frankenstein just see the monster, but they don't see the message behind the monster. So
2: that's a good take, right? So you're saying like, You know, in Frankenstein, we have now discovered this technology through science. We've been able to bring people back from the dead. And instead of going, wow, what an incredible new advancement. Everybody just flips out about (laughs) like, oh, look, he's ugly. Let's burn him at the stake. That's an incredible analogy, man. I I, I just have to say, like, that's that's an incredible thing to, to pull out on this. And it makes sense because. Even within the EV community, you have people who seem to be fighting each other on what the right message should be and should sound like. Right. It, it, it's very hard. And we, we are in this period of of really dramatic change. And you know, I was just reading earlier today that Hertz and BP were going to be working together when you rent an electric vehicle to be able to go to a BP station and there would be filling there for you so that they could kind of have more control over the maintenance of it. And, you know, to your point that there is all this fear surrounding all this stuff and everybody kind of has their own little solutions and their own little champion of like, this is going to work and that's not going to work. How do you think
0: it plays out? What do you think victory looks like? Well, Joe, I think what we're seeing is a convergence of, as Zachary alluded to, a convergence of several new technologies that are all coming to the fore at relatively the same time. One of them is uh, digital control uh, of, the, of the grid that allows grid managers to more accurately predict uh, what's going to happen and more accurately to uh, provide the amount of energy they need without having an excess of energy. Most uh, EV charging equipment now uh, is internet connected and actually goes out onto the internet and finds where the cheapest energy is going to be and schedules the charging to occur at that time. The utility companies are going to learn how to leverage the capacity in electric car batteries to help stabilize the grid. All of these things are happening at the same time. I will say, and this is an opinion, Change is something we all look forward to, and yet most people fear it. And one of the things about change is if it happens slowly, uh, such as uh, happened with air travel, or perhaps train travel would be a better analogy, because it took decades to build the, the railroad tracks, and it gave time to uh, for people to adapt to this new technology. It was faster than the horse and buggy, but it wasn't uh, supersonic. But now change happens almost by the hour. You go on the internet in the morning and you read the news and by, the, after, by uh, the evening edition, it's all different. And it's all this new stuff that's coming along and people are often overwhelmed by it. And just quite frankly, they shut down and they're like, I don't, I don't want to hear it anymore. It's too much. I can't absorb it. Uh, I, I think that's a big part of the, of the fear of uh, technological advance.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. I think actually some of my early blogs, when I started this in this business, were just like my, thoughts from my head about you know uh, lifestyle and stuff that, before I learned about finding news and writing about news, and and I remember writing about that people's fear of change and that how how much that hinders us. But I think that leads into the last point I wanted to make on the grid stuff, which. So the biggest headline, we're sort of burying the lead. Sort of the biggest story in the, related to the grid was that you know California announced they were going to ban sales of fossil fuel powered vehicles by by twenty thirty five, and then with the with the heat waves and the fire risk and all that, they they had this this grid challenges that. They made a lot of they they were responding to in various ways with whether activating the virtual power plants from solar and energy storage homes, or or other things. But one of the I say the thing that got the most attention was that they asked EV drivers to not charge at a certain period of time. And the the fear mongering was like, oh look, they're gonna have only EVs, and they still they can't even handle the gr- uh, EVs on the grid right now. Like, oh look, everyone's okay. gotta not charge their EV. But the point actually is that EVs offer flexible demand, so they have a very flexible, you know, ability to say, oh, I I don't need to charge you know, I have plenty of, of, of electricity in my battery. I want to charge at some point in the next couple of days, but I can charge between four and six instead of two and four or whatever. And and it's just an easy thing for EV drivers to do, you know, voluntarily. And for the grid, it provides a very convenient, easy uh, way to be more flexible with, with uh, supply and demand where they can say, oh, please charge at this, don't charge at this times, charge at this times, and they can more easily prevent the grid from going down by shifting demand around. So it's actually a benefit that EVs can be so smart and can can have and it, you can have this d- diverse, d- distributed, decentralized flexibility with e- e- with electric demand. So it's a it's a really huge benefit that got spun as a negative. And I'll just highlight one thing from one of Joe's recent podcasts. Which I was just listening to, he was uh, talking with Duncan McIntyre from Highland Electric Transportation, which is a company that is basically electrifying school buses for, for school districts and managing that so that you know taking some of the risk away while taking some profits. But one thing he pointed out right before we got on this podcast was that in the summer school buses don't are, are hardly needed at all, and they have these, and if they're electric, they have these big batteries and electric grids could very easily tap into those batteries uh, you know pay pay whoever you know owns operates the school buses to use those batteries as energy storage when they need ener- more energy storage and you've got these fleets of electric buses with big batteries that are just like perfect for that especially in the summer or at other times when they're when they're not uh, in high use but i i just found that a fascinating and really useful opportunity to think about that I'd never really thought thought about before but should we switch to hypercars now was it hypercars is that topic too Joe yeah
2: I think that's the uh I think hypercars is a good way to put it I mean specifically Ariel came out with a very high powered ultra lightweight sports car and they're calling it the hypercar but with an I so it's h-i-p-e-r car that's their their model name but that's just the tip of the iceberg right it's been a wild week we have Mercedes AMG came out with their new C63 that has 671 horsepower. That's a plug-in hybrid. GAC, which is the Chinese EV manufacturer, they're a giant company. They came out with something that they are calling the uh, Ion Hyper SSR. That's a car that's making 1,200 horsepower, and it looks very nice. I want to get back to that one in a second. And then you have you know, Renault, which is a French company, they're aligned with Nissan and their new micro car is the, the R five that used to sell those in the U S called a Le Car. They have now an electric version of that with a dual motor, big spoilers, fat tires. And, and this thing, does, you know, they're talking about zero to 120 miles an hour in under six seconds, which is just absolutely bonkers for, for anything. Right. So, you know, to put it in a little weird hatchback car like this, is really something. And it, it kind of reads like a statement of intent from this new kind of reborn, you know, Nissan Renault EV division that, you know, I think we can actually start to
0: expect some uh, some pretty aggressive, pretty competitive EVs from those guys. Well, Joe, one of the things I think uh, with regard to electric sports cars is these are, these are low volume vehicles. They're not going to uh, sell in huge numbers, but they're Pretty much for the EV market, what the Corvette is for Chevrolet. They're they're a halo car. They're something. Exactly right. That bring people into the showroom. They look at the Corvette and they go, oh, wow, that Corvette, that is so swell. Gee, I wonder if I buy this Chevette over here in the corner, if some of that luster won't wear off on me. Yeah, exactly right.
2: You know, it's interesting. I, I remember early, early on in this, like in the, in the nineties, I was talking, I, I had the rare opportunity to talk to Bob Lutz. You know, this is still when Bob Eaton was running Chrysler before the Mercedes merger. And they made the comment at that time, you know, we don't build Dodge Vipers to sell Dodge Vipers. We build Dodge Vipers to sell Dodge Shadows, you know, which was the, the predecessor to the Neon. So it was a great, a great example of that. And I think it maintains industry-wide. Like, I think if people start seeing more and more electric cars that are desirable, that are worth pinning up on, on your bedroom wall, right? Like that's really going to accelerate the change. And I think that's what Tesla did right. When you look at the early days of the Model S, you know, and even in Clean Technica's coverage of the Model S, I mean, Clean Technica is not a buff book, right? Like, we don't talk about zero to 60 or cornering or anything like that in in the same way that other magazines do. But a lot of the early coverage of the Tesla Model S was, you know, 15 supercars that the Tesla is faster than. Look at this drag race between the Tesla Model S and a Ford GT40. And, you know, that kind of thing. Even though it doesn't necessarily translate to the mass market, that sort of halo effect from those top spec, top shelf Model S cars that sold a lot of Model Threes on the low end. I think. I mean, I know that's why Zachary bought his, so he could go drag racing for pink slips and, uh, you know, in the California River and the Los Angeles River.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, it's huge, huge, huge effect. And I mean, it, it even, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it influenced me and influenced just about everybody for for years i you know i it's hard to to think about how to talk about this i would say you know typically those kind of cars don't interest me and i for the past few years there's been so many now electric hyper cars and and quicker and quicker cars that i don't pay that much attention to that side of the story that side of the industry but i don't remember when, when we when we talked about this before but it's but it's it's a really important point is that these are halo cars for people who love cars, and when someone goes to buy a car, they often ask their car guy friend for advice. So, you know, they the halo cars might influence someone, and then they might, you know, be so influenced by it that they recommend, yeah, like you said, the shadow or, or something else, a Renault, you know, Megane 5 EV or some, something, you know, in, to, to their friend who doesn't care about hypercars, you know, but it it it's it sort of, you know, it has some kind of eventual domino knock on effect, even for those who don't follow, follow these trends. I would say the the one that we were started talking about the the, the hypercar that looks like a Batmobile. The thing that got me was, you know, the headline that it was like a Batmobile. And then I opened it and I was like, Oh, yeah, it looks like a Batmobile. And I <laughs> it looks just like a Batmobile. <laughs> and I mean, I absolutely love the Batmobile. And I was like, man, I love that car. And I normally wouldn't care if it's just another quick car. But I was like, that's super cool. It's a Batmobile. And I think, you know, that that's the kind of thing, too, that catches a lot of people who don't necessarily care about acceleration, and all that, but might just be like, drawn to the fact that it looks like that. you know. So I think, you know, it's a definitely a fun. I mean, I imagine that car got a bazillion clicks across the Internet on different headlines. And I'm sure a lot more people opened up to read about it or look at it than normally look at car stories. Well, yeah. Zach, there
0: was I got one comment on the story about the uh, the, the aerial hypercar, and uh, uh, one fellow said, "Wow, the front of that car is just so weird." And I said, "Yeah, at first I thought it was a BMW." <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's good. That's very good.
0: wow.
2: That's like that's one of those like rare jokes where like. If you don't get it, it's like that doesn't make any sense. But if you do get it, that's like a savage burn, man. Oh, please remind me never to make Steve angry because I I don't think, I think if he ever gave me a real good double barrel Steve Hanley insult, I think I would just poop my pants, wither up, and die.
1: (laughs) Well, they say if you have to explain a joke and then it's not
0: funny, but that one you don't have to explain. You don't have to explain.
1: Well, I was tempted to just bring up that there is this this BMW SUV, electric SUV that just has the most, I mean, it's got, I mean, I, I, anyone listening must know, I mean, but it just, it's got this, they, they know. this beaver grill that's like, oh my gosh, it's like, what was BMW thinking? But we're not talking about BMW. I, yeah, we're going to leave it. We're going to leave it. Steve threw, threw that out there. We're going to try to not be tempted to, to, come, to talk about BMW's new designs. Well, I,
0: for, for those of you who are into BMW history, the, the, the other worst styling trend in history that came from that particular company before the enormous nostrils that they are in favor of now was what was called the bangle butt back in the 80s. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but it swept. The, oh, that
2: wasn't the, uh, the '80s. That was uh, 1999. That was the the 1999
0: BMW 750IL had the bangle butt. Well, and a lot of this, yes, right. It became you very popular.
2: We used to have. We had Chris Bangle's first cousin Heather was a writer for Clean Technica years and years ago, and she would. Immediately comment and send me nasty emails, Heather Carr, every time I said something derogatory about the BMW styling.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh,
2: she's like everybody picks on Chris. He's a good guy.
1: Throwback.
2: Seriously, that oh, was a wild one.
1: Well, you guys, what is there anything else you want to say about these uh, electric hypercars and this world in general, especially to people like me who don't follow it much?
2: Yeah, I, I I'll say this, you know, like. When you talk about these technological advancements that get down into these cars, like when you look at the Chevy Silverado, which is a mainstream vehicle by all accounts, and it has an 800 volt architecture that can split into two 400 volt architectures to take care, to take advantage of ultra fast charging, all of that stuff comes from these hypercars. That kind of technology, you know, comes from ideas that were had in Formula E and in you know, the world endurance championship and the hypercar class in terms of how can we get more power into these things faster? How can we make the, you know, how can we develop better traction controls and safety controls? A lot of that stuff does come from motorsport and does come from guys that are gearheads and enthusiasts who are just trying to, trying to push the envelope and see what they can get away with. And, you know, when they have something that works and they have something that they can replicate you know, that's when it ends up, uh, you know, into a, a Model S plaid and then filters its way down to the uh, Chevy Bolt and Nissan Leafs of the world. So, I mean, even if you don't care about this stuff, which is totally fair, it, it does influence the vehicles that everybody eventually is going to buy.
1: Yeah, I, was, so uh, have, I, I, I would actually keep in
0: mind, we have to keep in mind that the, um, to clarify terms, a car that gets zero to 60 in a short period of time is quick. A car that goes over 150 miles an hour, the top speed is fast. So
2: (laughs) sometimes they do both.
0: Well, some do both, but the, the Teslas tend to be quick uh, and their, their strength uh, is that they uh, have just, just extraordinary acceleration. And my wife hates it when I take people out for test drives in the Model Y, because she knows at some point I'm going to find a straight piece of road and, and slam the accelerator down. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah what I now call the exhilarator and (laughs) you just look across at the guy in the passenger seat and they have this big, stupid smile on their face. They just love it. People love to be, they love it. That big hand that pushes you back into the seat. They're like, Oh wow. This is so crazy. I want one of these.
2: For the, for the record, Steve, that model S that Tesla model S plaid unrestricted will hit 216. So it is both quick and fast. (laughs)
1: Yeah, now they've got more, you know, they've, they've developed more and more. I, I would just, you know, there's just countless smiles and laughs from that over the years. I mean, you can't, even, you can't even think how many people were influenced by that kind of test drive. I also think it's amazing after years of seeing people give these and do these, that I believe that's the first time I've said heard someone say that they've renamed the accelerator the exhilarator which is a testament to Steve's tremendous writing talent. uh, Steve is the best man. He is. He is really, I I always look up to him in my uh, goals for writing, entertaining pieces. So I just want to bring this down a tier actually, because uh, I'm I'm giving a presentation for a, for a webinar tomorrow. And my presentation is supposed to be on how different automakers are approaching the EV transition. So I've gone through and created a slide deck for, basically how several different automakers are approaching EVs. And one of the things that jumped out to me, stood out to me, is that it's sort of the difference between what Ford's doing and GM is doing. And GM decided to make their halo electric car, basically the Chevy Bolt. And it's just not an exciting car. I mean, it's it's good. It's great for what it's good for, but it's not a halo car. <laughs> And it and no matter how great it is, it's never going to be one because of its form factor and its its size and all that. And then Ford, you know, Ford was a bit late, and we used to slam them qu- quite a lot for being late in EVs and just having these kind of half half we'll call it a half butt attempt to make an EV with like the Ford Focus electric, but. When they got serious, they set up this team Edison, It was like a small group of people that they treated like a like a standalone startup. They said, you do whatever you think you need to do to make an, an awesome electric uh, electric car or even electric lineup. I don't know how much leeway they had, but we talked to their head of BEVs about this and they they were given free reign. And what they came out with was the Ford Mustang Mach E first. and it's just it's just it's it's a halo car for Ford. It's an exciting, attractive car it's a big SUV that you know a lot of people want these days but it's also quick and fun and 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 exciting and I think it's done really well for Ford and they've really they've seen a lot of interest in that and the Ford F150 lightning so much that they've like dramatically increased their production targets, their sales targets and I think it's just the way to go to if you if you're going to try to introduce your buyers to electric vehicles, you got to do it in the most exciting way possible. And I'm a little disappointed that GM still doesn't have that going. Uh, they have the Cadillac Lyric, which is, you know, very luxurious and cool in its own way. But it's they haven't done what Ford's done and used their biggest brands, their biggest names to entice people to go electric. And, yeah, I think it's a big difference.
0: Well, Zachary, having had the pleasure of selling automobiles for a certain period of time, I can tell you the number one rule for any salesperson uh, or the, the, the number one adage that all sales, salespeople know is that sales is the transfer of emotion. If you get excited, your customer gets excited. And if your customer gets excited, they will buy your product. And I think that speaks to your point. People are excited about the Mustang Mach-E. People are super excited about the F-150 Lightning. I don't get the same vibe, certainly from the Bolt or the E.U.V. or even the Equinox or uh, or the new um, was it the uh, heavy Blazer,
1: Blazer E.V. the Blazer,
0: which is, is they're going to have a high performance version, and maybe I'm wrong, but the um, Ford seems to be hot uh, in an emotional uh, way, and and G.M. is more cool. Maybe cool is a good long range good long range strategy. But uh, Ford seems to have uh, generated interest in the marketplace similar to the way Tesla did when they first started uh, producing their cars.
1: Yeah. And we one of our writers, we should say, actually, Jennifer Sensaba, she just recently bought a Chevy Bolt EUV. And but she's you know, she's a very practical person who's going to look at all these details and come to a practical decision. And not be swayed by who's trying to pull her emotional strings too much, I think. And, uh, you know, like you said, I mean, it's the emotions that are going to move the buyers. And the Chevy Blazer EV, it looks like it's going that direction more. But, you know, it's not it's not quite the same as what Ford's done. Well, Steve, do you have any final thoughts, comments on this general topic of high performance and fun and, and fun design? Electric vehicles. Anything else on the Batmobile?
0: Well, the the uh, the company that makes the um, the hypercar, Ariel, has a reputation of building some of the most extreme vehicles. I don't know. Uh, some people may be familiar with their first car, which was called the Ariel Atom, uh, which is basically a uh, a racing roll cage with no bodywork on it, uh, two seats, a motor, a transmission, brakes. And that's about it. And uh, it, it is, if if you're looking to go to an autocross or a track day, it's one of the one of the great vehicles. I don't know how many of these uh, hyper hyper cars uh, Ariel is going to sell, but they certainly got people's attention. And I think they purposely went out of their way to make the car visually appealing in a way that says, this is like nothing else I have ever seen. And well,
1: there's your emotion right there. Yeah, and it seemed to work. Well, thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you for another episode of Clean Tech Talk's Clean Round Talk, which we should probably just rename at this point because it's always confusing. <laughs> but thank you, Joe and Steve. And we'll, we'll check in again soon for another round of quick, of thorough Clean Tech news coverage. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.
0: If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A C C O U N T S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks
2: we you need
1: more